With me in the studio for this podcast, Love Someone with Delilah, is the amazing Richard Marks. And uh, my podcast producer, Deanna, just said, why aren't we rolling tape on this? Because this is such good stuff. It's all downhill from here. Actually. We, we said all the good stuff before, <laughs> we, good stuff before we you said. hit the red button. Yeah. Dang it. Dang it. Um, but on this <laughs> podcast, I not only want to talk about your music, your music history, your writing, your life. I want to talk about the ways that you are changing the world for good. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I don't know that I am, but I'm certainly giving it a, the old college try. So we're going to talk about all that and so much more with Richard Marks. Right now, we're going to just pause a moment to talk about the fabulous people who sponsored this podcast and make it all possible. The Home Depot. If you like to organize all your things, this month is dedicated to you. There's something about the beginning of the year that provides this burst of energy to organize everything around you. To clean out closets and garages, to put everything away just so. Thank goodness the Home Depot is there to meet your every storage container need. Your Home Depot store has tote containers of every size and every kind, from see-through to heavy-duty, and shelving systems to put all those totes on, too. And if that's not enough, every big game in the storage business is on display. Husky and Sterilite and HDX. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. In the studio, love someone with Delilah with Richard Marks. And all week long, people are say, have said, so Richard Marks is coming to your farm. And I'm like, yes, and I'm going to be right here waiting for him. And I'm like, <laughs> I bet you've heard that like 500 million bazillion times. I have. And it never gets old, especially even now. Did Daisy say that when you guys met? No, but after we got married, it was really after we got married uh, almost four years ago that she started doing that all the time and it really doesn't get old. So like we'll be uh, out somewhere and she'll go, oh, I just need to run into Ralph's to get some spinach for, okay, and I'll pull up. Or if I have to run an errand or something and she's, she'll go, I'll be right here waiting for you. That's her. That's thing. her little line. Just look at her and go, it never gets old. Never gets old. Yeah. But when I say it, it's a little different than when the most beautiful woman in the world that you're married to well, says it. I mean, <laughs> she, she really, she, she uh, I, I get speechless, you know, talking about her even now. And you've been married four years. How long did you date before? Not that long, maybe a year and a half. Yeah. How long after you met Daisy Fuentes? By the way, if you went and looked at my closet, you would notice that I have a lot of the dresses that she's yeah, designed. Her her brand has been on fire for 15 years. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why I don't look like she looks when she <laughs> wears them. Uh, you know, what's up with that? But um, how long after you met the most beautiful woman in the world, Richard Marks, did you know you were going to like want to spend the rest of your life with her? Well, I mean, you know, our trajectory was a little complicated because I actually talked to her on the phone 25 years ago, briefly. She was supposed to interview me on MTV. You know, she was on MTV for many years. And I always, like everybody else, I had a crush on her, you know, from afar. I thought she was absolutely I had a girl. Gorgeous. I have a girl crush on her. I yeah, most of, most, of our, most of the women in my life have a crush on Daisy. Yeah. So, you know, she's obviously physically beautiful. But there were, even back then, I remember when I would see her on MTV, I would think, she's just cool. Like, she would be fun to hang out with. But it was, that was it, because I was married for, you know, 100 years. 
and, and from the time I was 21, I was with my ex-wife. And, and so it was never like, you know. It was just was, a crush. Yeah, it was a little crush. But we spoke on the phone because she was supposed to interview me and it, something happened. And um, so we talked on the phone for like a minute. Flash forward to I'm single for half a second. And I did a, a gig in L.A. And she, that's where I met her. And when she walked backstage, which she, she usually doesn't do the backstage thing. Um, but she walked into the room and this sounds so sappy, but it's really like that. It was the moment, despite all the songs I've written, I never really believed in love at first sight or any of that stuff. Even though you wrote about it. Sure. All, and I've played all those songs all sure. those years. And there are aspects of course, to a lot of the relationship songs that I've written that I stand behind. But a lot of it is also just sort of, you write about what you hope and what you wish, you know? I didn't believe in that because it just seems so ridiculous. You can't know that. All I can tell you is when, she, when I first saw her, when she walked through the door, what happened to me physically was, I just remember thinking, my life is different now. And no matter what would have happened, there was something just so electric about that moment, her walking towards me. And we met, and what's really amazing is it was at, a, at this gig in LA at the Grammy Museum. So there's actually, there was a Getty photographer. There's a photo of the minute we met. Did he get the look on your face? Did he get yeah, that? Yeah, just it's a sweet smile but for both of us. But, you know, we literally, you know, hugged. And then the guy said, hey, can I get a picture of you guys? And we turned. And so, so we ha there's that photograph. How sweet is that? And it was, that? you know, we said, how could we not have met all these years? Well, the thing that's amazing about her is that um, we exchanged numbers and I started to, I, I was like, oh my God, she, the, the, she's just extraordinary and she's this and she's like, I've got to get to know her. And we started to hang out a little bit, but she was so smart that she knew I was coming out of a really, really long marriage and that I'd never been single in my adult life. And she made me be single for a while. She sh kind of shut us down. She was like, you need to know what it's like to be single. You've never experienced that. And she's like, I hope it doesn't ultimately blow up in my face, but I can't just sort of dive into a relationship knowing that you've never had that experience and you need to go hang out. And I was like, I don't want to. I like, I, she was like, no. Nah, <laughs> Why I, would I ever look at another woman when I, right. you've got me heart, mind, body, and yeah, soul. But it was brilliant. And I reluctant, like she really kind of gave me no choice. She, she kind of just said, you know, I, I love hanging out with you, but you, you need to. You need to go play the field. You need to play the field. You need to know what it's like to be on your own and single. And, and so she kind of, we, we, that was about like eight, nine months. And then little by little, we started to reintroduce ourselves to each other and that was really cool because it wasn't just sort of like a full-on dating thing we were we then got to know so each you other. started to court her it sounds like well i always courted her i was always into into that but there was something about like when we reconnected eight or nine months later it was really through sending each other links to thoughtful ideas and lectures and quotes and it was that kind of courting. It was like we were, we were connecting in a way like, like how can we help each other as human beings? Because we really like each other. We really, really care for each other. And we were both on this journey of exploration, which we're still on together as a married couple. And it was really kind of cool. Plus martinis. 
So it was, <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty, it was a pretty Gifts sexy Gifts for Mikey's and martinis. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so <laughs> you, you reconnected and you started this courtship. And then how long was it before you walked down the aisle? Oh, well, so we had sort of decided, I felt like we had decided that we didn't need to get married. In fact, we both talked a lot about how we thought that marriage was kind of dumb. It says he who has a wedding ring on. Right. But I will <laughs> say this. One thing I did learn, at least in my experience with all the people that I know, whose stories I really know, is that there seems to almost always be some agenda to two people getting married by one person or the other. Either it's financial security or it's, I want to have a baby, or it's, I don't want to be alone, I don't want to grow old alone. And where there is, even the most kind, sweet, it's still an agenda. It's still, I need something from that person. And a contractual obligation yes. like a marriage will, will get me what I'm after. Yeah, it's really true. And so we were fine. We were really having a great time. You know, we adopted a couple of dogs and, and we were just great. And then it hit me. We took this trip. I was performing in Singapore. Uh, I had a private show in Singapore on a Saturday night. And a week later, I had a public show in a beautiful venue the following Saturday. And so we spent the week in between in the Maldives, which we'd never been there before. And we travel really well together. And we had this blissful week. And I remember coming back to Singapore thinking, I want her to be my family. But there was just something about like, I, I want to marry her for the only reason that I think you should, which is I, there's no reason. I just want her to be family, you know? And I decided that I was going to propose when we got back from this trip. And it was the day, the next day. And I remember saying, um, you know, when she opened the, the ring box, she was so shocked. She couldn't breathe. So the first thing I said was, you, breathe, you can breathe. I said, and I just want you to know, there's no wrong answer. I would love to marry you, but if this is not something you want to do or you, want to, you don't want to change what we are, I'm totally fine either way. You're, it's all good. And she took a minute and she said the most amazing thing to me. She said, I decided a long time ago that I never wanted to be married, but I want to be married to you. Aww. And so we got married a month later. We were actually, um, this was in December, we were we were going to have all of our family together over the holidays in Aspen. We rented a house in Aspen to spend Christmas with our families. And so she said, are you really serious about this? Because we could just do it at the house over the holiday. I said, great. And her sister, Rosanna, got ordained in the state of Colorado. And she married us. Sweet. Yeah, it was awesome. Sweet, sweet, sweet. So yeah, we're coming up on four years married. And you have children that are older. How did they, how did they take to stepmom being the most beautiful woman in the world? Well, I mean, as they, as they got to know Daisy, as far as my boys, you know, they obviously are protective of me. Um, and they sussed it out pretty quickly. And so they had gotten to know her for several months. And, and we had a, a birthday party for my mom, her 80th birthday. And we were toasting her and celebrating and stuff. And then my oldest son, Brandon, said, I just want to make one more toast. And he said, I want to make a toast to Daisy because I've never seen my father so happy. Uh. And they've all, it, it all started with that. They, start, they saw 
you know, my son, my middle son, Lucas, and I, he's going, kind of going through some personal stuff right now with his relationships. And um, he's a really thoughtful, amazing man, young man. And he's really fascinated with the concept of changing your behavior. There, there, you know, there's the argument that some people go, it just, just can't be done. And I, I, I completely disagree with that, you know? And we were kind of going back and forth, like, do you ever really change? Is, are, are people really, um, do they have the potential to really change? And Lucas said, and every time I have that question, I think of you. And he said, you're a different man than you were before. And, and I don't mean that in any um, pejorative or negative way about my ex-wife, who's a wonderful person. It was me. It was like I wasn't, I wasn't living my true self. And what my sons now have now been seeing for five years is this other aspect of me that's completely authentic that they have gotten even closer to. My relationship with my sons has never been better. And it would be a drag, but it would be doable if they didn't, if they didn't really get along that well with Daisy. We would deal with it, right? But they've become such close friends with her. And they, like I do, they admire Daisy and respect her like I do. But they also just love, they love hanging out with her because she's so freaking fun. She, it's just, we, we as, a, as the new version of this family just have a blast. So what are some of the fun things, like if, if somebody were to peek into your life and see like the crazy, stupid, fun things that you and Daisy or you're you and Daisy and the boys or you and your mom like to do. What would be a window into that that somebody might be shocked at? It's not crazy, stupid stuff. It's stuff like, uh, okay, like a month ago, I was getting ready to go on the road. And we hadn't had a, we try to have a family dinner of some kind at least every week, but that wasn't happening for a while. So we finally got all the boys together to come over. With my mom, who's 84, but like super cool. Um, and we had a really nice dinner. And then Daisy surprised us with this game. Well, we went into the living room and she said, I, everybody's going to write down one word to describe that person. And then a one word to describe that person. And we're going to, so it became this game where we, it, it became, it was hilarious, but it was, um, it's those kind of things. Like it's more thoughtful, uh, what's the right word? It's real. Like we really, really talk about real stuff. We don't talk about Game of Thrones, you know? We talk about life and helping each other. And that's really taken a huge leap forward since Daisy and I got married and in terms of the whole family. Authentic. I like that you, you used that word earlier, authentic. Can you imagine if everybody would take off the mask and stop hiding and stop pretending It'd and be stop awesome. being whatever they're not, whatever they think they're supposed to be. Yeah. And instead we're just authentic. Well, it's harder now, especially I think because, you know, things like Instagram have made it that much more difficult to be just sort of who you are because the, the competition that people put on themselves to be, I'm not, I'm not having as good a life as they are on Instagram. Yeah. But if you saw their real life, you'd be like, oh, wow. That's, well, it's funny you should say so that. That's so not what their life is. Because our listeners can't see this, but on the, the, your phone case has a gorgeous picture of your wife, Daisy Fuentes, mm -hmm. 
I mean, she's so, it looks like it should be on a billboard. It's so beautiful. And the first thing I thought when I saw that is that would be really funny. One of those Pinterest fails, you know, if I tried to get in the same pose. (laughs) Here's Daisy Fuentes wearing this, this fishnet outfit. And here's Delilah. (laughs) But that was my thought, because like you said, competition, my instant thought. Was that kind of I? I don't wake up looking that gorgeous. Not that, not that I don't love myself and love that what God made, because I do, and I'm much more comfortable in my skin today than I ever have been in my life. Yeah. Um, and I praise God. I thank God for the life that I have and and the body that I have. And I got a new hip, so I can walk and oh, I have ride horses and and and. Isn't it amazing yeah. to be able to do stuff without oh pain? My gosh, uh, you know, I got, I got both my hips replaced when I was um, fifty-one, so like four or five years ago, and it was like life-changing. Yeah, I had to use the cart at the grocery store. Oh wow! Yeah, I could not walk. So I am I am happy as can be with the the body. That's that all that matters. But back to your point that it is very hard to be authentic. Yeah. In a world where everything is captured, Especially everything is business. videotaped, everything is Instagrammed, everything is facetuned, everything is an image, a brand. Yeah. The Richard Marks brand instead of you, your music. We're going to take a quick break here to talk about one of our sponsors. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. 
basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk about your music. Okay. Because I was mentioning before, I have been on the air full-time since 1974. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And I've been doing this show since 1984. Wow. I think I've played every song you've you've ever recorded. Been a part of. Yeah. Well, you definitely played every song I recorded because I didn't start recording until 87. But the first song I wrote that someone else recorded, I was 19 or 20, Kenny Rogers, Kim Carnes, and James Ingram in a song called What About Me. What About Me. This is in 1984. They wouldn't, there were a bunch of stations in the South that wouldn't play it. Because it was a love triangle between Kenny Rogers and James Ingram and Kim Carnes. And there were a bunch of Southern stations that said, we're not going to play a song between a white man and a black man over a white woman. Yeah. That's still how screwed up it was. Yeah. So yeah, you you must have played, you know, every single, every. Yeah. And I played them on vinyl when I was playing. Damn right you did. Yeah. With a penny on the needle. So. You didn't start recording until 87. Yeah. But how many hits did you write before then? A few. Because you worked with NSYNC. Oh, that was way after. Yeah, yeah. That was in the 90s. So I wrote What About Me with Kenny Rogers and David Foster. And then I wrote a song with Kenny called Crazy. I guess I'm crazy. Crazy for you. I'm still in touch with Kenny Rogers, by the way. I love Kenny Rogers. And that song went to number one country, top five AC. And like, that would have been 84 as well. And then just some random song. I wrote a song on a Chicago album. I wrote a song with Philip Bailey for the movie, The Goonies. And, and I was making a living as a songwriter, but mostly as a background singer. So I sang on a ton of records you played before I had a record deal. I sang on All Night Long by Lionel Richie. I sang on all the Lionel Richie hits. I kissed Lionel Richie once. Did you? I did. He's the coolest. He's so cool. I love that guy. He is so cool. I love him. Yeah. We had a moment. Yeah. Well, it was, it was an autograph line, mm. but for me, it was a moment. Yeah. 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 He, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I've told this story many times, but when I was 18 years old, I had written four or five songs. I was living in Chicago with my parents. I was in my senior year of high school and I had written my first four or five songs that I thought were worthy of at least demoing. And I found a studio and I paid for it, of course, by myself with my savings. And I made this demo tape cassette, which went from a friend of mine in college who was a year ahead of me and was in college to his roommate, to another guy, to another guy who was working with the Commodores at the time. This is right as Lionel was just about to go solo. And the phone rings and it's Lionel Richie. And you were 18? I was 18, maybe 17, actually, because I, yeah, I, I was still 17 when I graduated. So I was 17 and in my senior year of high school, and he said, I heard this tape of yours. And my phone number was written in pencil on the back. He called the number. And he just called to tell me that he thought I was really talented and that I should give it a shot. Aww. And he said, look, I have no work for you. I, don't, I can't promise. I'm not here to promise you anything. I just want to tell you, you know, I hear tapes all the time. And if these are your first, this is your first batch of songs, man, you should hear my first songs. They sucked. 
And I just, you know, you should move to LA. I don't know what your plans are. Your parents are going to probably hate me, but you know, cause I was thinking about going to Northwestern and going and I bailed and my parents were like, go, go to LA and try. You can always go back to school if you know. And so he said, but look me up. If you come out to LA, he gave me his number. And so you're, you're in change later. Dude, I come out, wait. And he invites me over to the studio. He's making a solo record and I'm sitting in the studio. And first of all, I was just so thrilled to meet him. And he was so, he's such a charming guy. And I'm sitting there watching them. They're doing background vocals on this song called You Are, which became a huge hit for him, right? And they were really struggling with the blend. He couldn't find the sound that he was looking for. And all of a sudden he looked through the glass at me and he pointed and he was, come out here. And I go out there and he's, you sing my part that I was singing. And he switched the parts with the other two singers and he went in the control room and he went, okay, go chorus. And we sang and he went, that's the sound. And, and I never missed a day at the studio. He said, I want you to sing background vocals on this record, but I just want you to know that if I'm in this room, whether you're singing or not, you're welcome to be in this room. And so for four months, every day I went to the studio and watched him make that record. Can you, what a gift that what was. What a gift. And so cut to, and this is, you'll really appreciate this. So cut to six months ago, maybe I get this incredible um, offer to come and, and open for Barbara Streisand at Hyde Park in London. And Barbara and I have been friends for a long time. So wait a minute, like, could your life be any more magical? No. Could your life, Richard Marks, be any more like blessed? I know. Married to the most beautiful oh, woman in the world. Best friends with your three boys. Yeah. Best friends with your 84-year-old mama. I'm 56. Hair, Look at the hair. hair. You got great hair. And you get to open for Barbara Streisand. Yes. And you got you got a phone call at 18 from Lionel Richie, who but you're wait, still friends with. But wait, this is so great. This is such a bookend. So I knew that Lionel had played the night before at Hyde Park, opening for Stevie Wonder. Um, Stevie Wonder, Lionel Richie, Barbara Streisand, Richard Marks, you're killing me. So this was the night before. And then the, the next night was you and Barbara, me and Barbara. Chris Christopherson was on as well. But uh, um, and so I'm on stage and it was such a magical gig. And then watching Barbara do her thing was amazing. And I get back to the dressing room and there's a text on my phone from Lionel. And the text says, I'm sitting on my hotel balcony listening to you sing right here waiting. And I'm so proud of you. I mean, that's 37 years later. How sweet. And I text him. I was like, dude, where are you? Let's go to dinner. He said, I'm getting ready to go to the airport. But he said, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm listening to you sing to these, you know, 10,000 people in London. And I'm just so proud of you. So go back the 36 years to when you were a teenage kid and he called you and encouraged you in your music. And then the gift of time he poured into you in the studio. Yeah. And. You know, I, I wrote a book about it. I talk about it on my show every night. The importance of, of changing the world one heart at a time. And I had a friend in my kitchen the other day said, I finally got it. She said, I finally got it. I said, what? She goes, this whole one heart at a time thing you're talking about. She, she'd been with me when I was interacting with some of my adopted kids and some other children that our family's kind of taken in. And she said, when you pour yourself into one person, it makes a difference. Yeah. That's, that's my whole message right there. Well, when exp you pour and, and exponentially into one person like Lionel Richie did for you. Yeah. 
the impact that has, it's like that ripple, you know, the pebble in the pond, the ripples go out forever. Yeah. That impact, his impact and influence on your music, your impact and your music's influence on generations of people, it just grows and builds and, and it's the essence, I believe, of love and the reason we're here. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, you can imagine when you're, especially at that sort of age of 17 or 18, to have someone like him say that to me was like a rocket yeah. of confidence yeah. and hope. Like the fuel that that gave me was uh, life-changing. And I have, the only thing I've been able to do for him, for Lionel, is tell these stories. I want everybody to know. I, I, I tell everybody who will listen. What the best part about being friendly with Lionel Richie is when you call him and he picks up and he goes, hello. God, he's so cute. So for years, I've got to play your music. And now you're back in the studio recording again. Tell me about your new stuff. Because my producer, Janie, came to me a couple of months ago and was so excited. She oh, that's said, so cool. Oh I love that. I love that anybody cares at this point. You know, it's... Well, that's the cool thing about the fact that I'm, you know, I I still get to be on the air because I've, I've seen, I know the stories. I've seen the history. I watched Daisy Fuentes back in the day uh, when I had a TV on MTV. (laughs) I I haven't had a TV for 20 years. Good for you. We didn't, we never watched TV. But having that history and loving your music. That's really cool. Well, you know, I, I got to a point in the last 10 years, I'd say, where I sort of, um, felt like touring and playing concerts is really what my career is. And for as long as I'm able to do it, um, I really am a believer that uh, records and putting something that's on the radio and all that stuff is really for younger people. But the conflict was that I, you know, I still write songs all the time and I love, and I love making new music and I love making records, but I did get to a point where it was a, a little bit like, what's like, why, why? You know, um, I have a couple of acquaintances who are sort of peers of mine who are around the same age or older than me that were popular when I was popular on the radio. And they still have this, what I consider a delusion <laughs> of, I'm going to have another number one record. I'm going to, and it's like, dude, no, you're not. And it's okay because you had a lot of hits. And I feel like once I determined that it really just has to be about my love of writing and recording new music. And that's all that matters. Then it was like, oh, okay, well, I want to make an album. I actually, this is another great story. I I found myself at a dinner, at a really small dinner, six or eight months ago with Chris Martin. And I'd never met him before. And I'm a fan, I'm a big fan of Coldplay and what he does. And he's a really, really, uh, at least from my one couple hour hang with him, he was really charming and kind and and we had a couple of really great conversations. And he asked me, he said, so I know you're touring all the time, but like, are you making a new record or anything? I said, yeah, I just, I'm finishing a new album. And, and I said, you know, I don't know what it means for somebody like me, but. And so then somebody started talking and, and the conversation shifted for five or 10 minutes. And I could see Chris's face, like, like looking at me, like, we're not done with that conversation. Sure enough, politely, he got out of that conversation and said to me, yeah, can I go back to what you were saying? Like, I'll tell you what it means for you. It's still coming through you. And it's like, he said, 
I'm sure when you started writing songs, it was about, yeah, you had a lot to prove and you've had an incredible career, but it's still about the songs still come through us. Like as long as the songs are still coming through us, that's what matters. And here's this guy that's, you know, much younger than I am. And it was a really kind, sweet thing to say. And it was like, yeah, man. Yes, that's exactly what it's about. And so what this new music is about is me just going in and having fun and recording and, you know, the song, the single, another one down. I ended up writing with my son, Lucas, and he produced it. Um, I wrote another song with him. I wrote several songs by myself, which I have traditionally done. Most of my stuff has been self-written. But I collaborated with some new people on this record too, which was really, really fun. Young songwriters and and my friend Matt Scannell from the band Vertical Horizon, who's my best friend, but also I think one of the most talented guys in the world. And and, I, and it's a very schizophrenic album. Like there's <laughs> like there's stuff that's sort of like modern country, and then there's stuff that's like super modern pop, and then there's like the, it's all over the place. But the thread is my voice and. They, it's just a collection of songs I really, really love that I want people to hear. Simple as that. Very cool. That is pretty simple, but pretty sweet. And I'm glad that uh, that you got another one down to get to us so that we could uh, share it with our and audience. I love that you guys played it. I love that you played it. Well, I'm very fortunate in that, you know, there's all this research and there's all this gobbledygook that all the record or radio companies do that, that tells me who my target audience is supposed to be. Yeah. You know, they're, they're big on research. And, yeah. and, you know, imagine when you're on the air, you're talking to a 27-year-old, you know, female driving home from work, picking up her child at daycare and and da-da-da-da-da-da. But the, the truth is I get phone calls from young people. I get phone calls. I got a phone call the other day from somebody who lives down at Mount Shasta off the grid He's in his late 80s. He cuts his own firewood because his cabin, the house that he lives in, is only heated with firewood. And he's like completely off the grid. And he's got this radio that he picks me up on every night. Wow. And, and we talk for a long time. And I'm like, dude, you are so not my target audience. And I so love this conversation we're having. Yeah. And so uh, it's nice that a, a, a broad range of people get to, to hear your music. You know, they hear right here waiting and uh, right. all of your big hits every night because they're perfect for every <laughs> request and dedication anyone ever makes. I don't know if you've listened, but right here waiting is a song that that I used to play for couples who were getting back together yeah. or couples who had been separated by the military. Yeah, that's that was huge, for the, especially when the song was a hit in 89, you know, it was the Gulf War. yeah. I met obviously many men who were deployed at the time and they'll, they'll go, man, that was my song with my wife or my girl. And I also met a lot of widows and widowers of military personnel who died during that time. And that was their song. This one woman told me that, um, this is like a couple of years later after her husband was killed, that when she got his belongings back, one of the belongings was his laptop. And she said, the screensaver or his, you know, his screensaver on his computer were the lyrics to right here waiting. I mean, I, I don't even know what to say to stuff like that. It's so, because when you write songs from such a selfish, personal place, I never, I've never written a song that I thought I want to write a, an anthem for the world. 
I want to write songs that other people can. It's, I swear to you, I am so selfish about my writing. I write songs that please me, that make me feel something, that are therapy sometimes. And I hope that other people like them. That's it. So when someone says stuff like that, it's a privilege. It's such a privilege to have created something that impacts someone in any way, let alone like that. I have people now that will come up to me and if they say, you know, I just want to thank you because we, we used your song at our wedding. I go, should have known better. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're recording and you're touring. I actually don't use that word. I just do show. I do, you know, 60, 70, 80 shows a year all over the world. And then the next year I just do a bunch more shows. I just play shows. And it's such a blast because it's not, it's not uh, album centric. It's not, I'm not promoting anything except my catalog of songs. Yeah. Except now you have an album. So we should talk about a tour. Like I could do backup maybe. Yeah. I could do the dance. Absolutely. <laughs> you could, you could wear this thing that Daisy's wearing. Woo! Sell more tickets. That, that, well, it would be an interesting take on that for sure. <laughs> Richard Marks, thank you for coming and being here with us. Always a pleasure, and, Delilah. And sharing all these great stories. Next time you see Lionel, give him a kiss on the other cheek. I, I will, for sure. Kissed him on the right cheek. Not that I remember, but if you could. Of course you remember. Kiss it right there. It's indelible. It is. <laughs> Richard Marks, thank you for sharing time with Love Someone with Delilah. 